I'm going to read today uh, from uh, Mark's Gospel, first chapter, uh, beginning at verse 14, and uh, we'll read through verse 21. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I like other versions that say, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, verse 17, come follow me, oh, verse 18, at once, yeah, you can just go 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So, really, the invitation of Jesus is, and has always been, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And, and this incredible passage where he calls disciples, and, and they just drop their nets immediately and go after him. They knew when he said, come, fo come follow me, they knew what he meant. I think sometimes we don't know what he means. Sometimes we don't really know what, what it means uh, to follow Jesus. We've kind of bought into this lie, this idea that what it means is pray a prayer, get your ticket punched, go to heaven when you die. And that's not, that's really not all there is to it. it it's much, there's much more than that. Uh, Jesus is calling us into something. It's something exciting, it's something world-changing. It's actually the greatest adventure ever. And that's what his invitation to us is, to join that, to come into that. Dave Canastrasi uh, wrote one of, one of my favorite books. And in that book, he gives this quote. He says that when the disciples dropped their nets on the beach in Capernaum that day, it barely made a sound. But it thundered in heaven. It thundered in heaven. So today what we want to talk about is what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to disciple? Uh, we have, I believe, reduced uh, in some ways this idea of being a disciple. We, we, we talk rather about what does it mean to be a Christian, and we, we focus in on the prayer. We talk about the sinner's prayer. We want to pray a prayer, and we believe that if we pray this prayer, uh, that our ticket will be stamped, and we will make it to heaven when we die. But the invitation of Jesus actually was and always has been, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And what does he mean when he, when he says, come and follow me? He is actually saying to us that he wants us to go with him because he wants to give us what he has and he wants to teach us what he knows so we can do what he did. That's really what he's calling us to. He wants to give us what he has. He wants to put his spirit in us. And he wants to teach us what he knows, which is everything from the Father, so that we can do what he did. 
Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, says that the Western church has lost the meaning of Christianity because we don't make disciples or discipleship a condition for being a Christian. He says, he goes on to say that the church in the West, in the church in the West, one is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian, and one may remain Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary Western churches, he says, do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of membership, either of entering into or continuing in fellowship of a denomination or a local church. Churches are therefore filled with undiscipled disciples. Most problems, he goes on to say, in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have not yet decided to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this Christianity without Christ. And he said, it's useless. <laughs> the invitation of Jesus is not just to love him. At least it's not just to love him the way we understand love. We understand love as having affection for, having emotion towards, feeling, having feelings for someone. But in Scripture, love is more than that. Love has action with it in Scripture. In fact, Jesus said, the ones who love me are the ones who obey me. When we look at the, the love of the Father, John three sixteen, the verse that everybody knows, says he, the, he loved the world so much that he gave. In other words, he loved us so much he did something. He didn't just have this feeling for us. He acted. He acted on what he felt for us. Now, we like to say that Jesus meets us where we are, and, and he does. He does meet us where we are. And, and honestly, we're in some pretty bad places. But he meets us where we are. But guys, he has never intended to leave any of us there. He'll meet you where you are, but his intention is not to leave you there. He meets you where you are so he can raise you up to a higher place, to a better place. Uh, we tend to think of his life, the life that he lived on earth, as being otherworldly and, and maybe even unattainable. Uh, we look at the things that Jesus did and we're like, well, you know, well, he did that because he was God. And, and that's, you know, that's out of reach for me. And I, and I would say maybe that chances are no one in this room has or ever will walk on water. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm just guessing. I mean, I, I feel like if you had walked on water, I would have heard about it. Um, but I'm guessing that probably none of us have, worked, have walked on water, and, and you probably haven't changed water into wine. I'm sure I would have heard about that. Um, but I also don't believe that when Jesus says, come and follow me, that he has water walking or wine production in mind. I, I really don't. I think he has some other things on his heart. Uh, but I also don't believe, and I, and I don't want you to believe for one second, that his invitation, come and follow me, is so that you and I can tag along 
and watch him do stuff. I believe that his invitation, come and follow me, is, is what I said before. He calls us to follow him because he wants us to have what he has, know what he knows, so we can do what he does. He is calling us into his kingdom to do kingdom things. Now, the truth is, we will not do much in our own strength. We won't do much by our own flesh, our own gifts, our own talents, our own intelligence. We won't accomplish a whole lot. But if we believe that in surrendering to him, he will fill us with his spirit, put his very spirit inside of us and live his life through us, then we can do things. In fact, the Bible says that with him, with God, nothing is impossible. There should be in us a very kingdom-like character to our lives. Uh, when they first started using uh, the word Christian, what it actually meant was little Jesuses. We're supposed to look like him. Our life is supposed to look like his. And if our life, once we have surrendered to him, does not begin to bear some resemblance to his life, then we have to ask the question, are we really his? If our life bears no resemblance to his life, what is our connection? Or are we really his? Is there really a divine exchange going on? So, let's, let's take a look at his life. We'll, we'll just use Mark 1. Mark 1 is very succinct. It's very, it moves quickly from one thing to the other. So, it's a good study in the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, he preaches to repent and believe good news. And he says to several people, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, in the second half of chapter 1, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals sick people that come to him. He heals a leper, and he gets up before daylight to go and pray. In chapter 2, he heals a paralytic. He eats with sinners, and he says, again, come and follow me. In chapter 3, large crowds follow him, and he tries to get away from them. In chapter 4, he calms a storm. In chapter 5, he heals a demon-possessed man, raises a girl from the dead, heals a woman who just touches his clothes. In chapter 6, he sends out the 12, he feeds 5,000, he walks on water, and he is rejected by his hometown. In chapter 7, he has conflict with religious leaders. He heals a woman's daughter, and he heals a deaf mute. In chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 and he heals a blind man. In chapter 9, he heals a boy who has an evil spirit and he teaches on sin and is transfigured on a mountain. In chapter 10, he teaches about divorce. He teaches about protecting children. He tells a rich guy to give away everything he has and come and follow him. And he heals a blind man. In chapter 11, he goes into Jerusalem with a parade of people and he cleanses the temple and he curses a fig tree and he has conflict with religious leaders. In chapter 12, he teaches on taxes 
and marriage and the resurrection from the dead. Those three things Jesus seems to think go together. Taxes, marriage, and being raised from the dead. I, I don't know. But he does that. And then in that also he teaches about the greatest commandment. In chapter 13, he teaches on signs of the end times. In chapter 14, he's anointed. In Bethany, he eats Passover with his best friends. He goes to Gethsemane to pray with his best friends. He is arrested and tried while his best friends desert him and deny him. In chapter 15, he's crucified. Chapter 16, he's raised from the dead. Sound like your life? Yeah, I know. There seems to be a gap. There seems to be a bit of a gap between the life that Jesus modeled and the life that we actually live. But this is the life that he's called us into. He's called us to follow him. He's called us to demonstrate the kingdom, which is what he did everywhere he went. Whenever and wherever in history the church has found a gap between what Jesus modeled and how we're actually behaving, whenever there's been that gap, the same response, the solution has been the same. Whether the gap seemed to be widening or just the gaps were staying the same and not narrowing, if there was a gap between what Jesus said and did and how he lived and what we are saying and doing and how we are living, when there is a gap, the answer is pretty simple. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Who is he? And what exactly is it that he has called us to? What exactly is it that he has invited us into? Because I promise you, it's more than pray the sinner's prayer, get your ticket punched, go to heaven when you die. It's more than that. Our identity and our activity must be rooted in him. Our identity and our identity. Our identity and our activity. Jesus said that we should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Why did he say that? Because when our focus is on Jesus and his kingdom and the things of his kingdom, our lives are transformed. When our focus is on Jesus and his kingdom, our lives will be transformed. When we connect with the person of Jesus, he will transform us. He will shape us. Now, I've said, let me preface this by saying that I, I, I'm a fan of counseling. Um, I have friends and family members who've been helped incredibly by professional counselors, Christian counselors. So don't hear me say that I don't like counseling. I, I think professional counselors are amazing. God uses them incredibly. They, they are very life-giving. But I have said a couple of different times from the platform, if people, if Christians would read their Bibles and pray, most of our stuff would go away. And I've gotten some pushback on that. 
Because people, when, they, when I say that, people think that I'm saying, ah, counseling is not important. That's not what I'm saying. I didn't say all of your stuff would go away. I said most of your stuff would go away. So, now I have proof. I got this last week uh, from some good friends of mine. Uh, the Center for Bible Engagement did a study. And they studied, they, they polled 40,000 people, just general population in the United States between the ages of 8 and 80. 40,000. And their goal was they wanted to find out how people were engaging in Scripture. How much were people reading, reading the Bible? That was what they really were trying to find out, but they found out some other things that they really weren't trying to find out, things that are pretty important. One thing they found out was that when you read the Bible one time a week, you know what, you know what kind of an impact it has on you? If you read the Bible once a week, it has minimal, almost unmeasurable, negligible impact. If you read the Bible twice a week, same Negligible, negligible impact, almost not measurable. Third, if you read the Bible three times a week, there's like a heartbeat. It's like just a little blip on the radar. Something's happening, can't quite tell what it is, but something's happening. But if you read the Bible four times a week or more, it literally spikes off the chart. Four times a week or more. Here's the way it goes. These, these are some key areas that it affects. If you read the Bible four times a week or more, don't, I'm not saying four times and no more. It's not four and no more. It's four or more, okay? So four times or more, feelings of loneliness drop by 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, kids, friends, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Just reading the Bible four times a week reduces feelings of spiritual stagnance by 60%. Viewing pornography drops by 61% just by reading the Bible four times a week or more. On the positive side, sharing your faith, if you read the Bible four times a week or more, sharing your faith increases by 200%. And discipling others increases by 230%. Why? Why? Because there are certain things that God has designed specifically for the purpose of engaging him. Reading the Bible, prayer, worship, these are things that God has designed so that when we do them, it puts us in the path of his grace and we have the opportunity to encounter the living God. And when we encounter him, our lives are changed. He wants to change us. 
He has called us into relationship because he wants us to know what he knows, have what he has, and do what he did. Now, for most of us, I was this way, most of the people that I know were this way. For most of us, we don't get it right off. We don't understand how this works right off the bat. Even when we give our life to Jesus, we become a Christian, we're born again, we still don't quite get it, and we'll spend a period of time trying to do all these things that God has called us to do in our own strength. Almost trying to earn, even after we've been forgiven, trying to earn God's approval and his love by doing things in our own strength. It's like, I guess we have to try and fail the wrong way before we understand the right way. We have to try and fail the wrong way before we get the secret of discipleship. Because the secret is Christ in us. It's really not a secret. It's all in the Bible. Paul said, Christ in you is your hope for glory. It is the secret. It's that glorious, unsecret secret of the Christian life. That we're not supposed to live our lives for him. We're supposed to invite him in to live his life in us and through us. Discipleship is all about surrendering. The secret of the Christian life is surrender. Discipleship means surrendering to him and following him in order to be made like him. Discipleship, is, it's not, and it never has been about checking boxes. It's not about checking boxes. It's not about you know, how many times you do this and how many times you do that. It's not even about believing all the right things. I, I want to believe the right things. I do. I, I think that when you believe the right things, you have a better chance of doing the right things. But discipleship is not just about believing all the right things. You know the Bible says that demons in hell believe. <laughs> it's not helping them. There are people in the world and in history that I agree with and have never met and will never know. And so agreeing with God is not enough. I want to be connected to him. I want to be connected to him. I want to know him. If there are boxes to check, they must be boxes that lead us into a more intimate knowledge of him and a a deeper surrender to him. That's the call of discipleship. From Jesus, from our connection to him, and from, from knowing him and having his spirit come to live in us, our identity is established, our destiny is determined, and our family is formed. Think about that. Our identity, what is our identity? How how we see ourselves. We recognize in our relationship with Jesus that we are adopted into his family and we become sons and daughters. We're not slaves, we're not servants. We are sons and daughters. You can't really know that. You might think it, you might hope for it. You won't know it until the spirit of God in you declares it. Our destiny. What is our destiny? Our destiny is really, is just simply, what are you going to do with your life? 
what are you going to do with your life? And I, I don't mean graduate from college, get a job, and go into debt. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying, what are you going to do with your life that matters? How are you going to change the world? How are you going to express the kingdom of God in the world? Your destiny is what you do with your life. And your family is who you do it with. Your family is who you do it with. Identity, sons and daughters. Destiny, to give the world glimpses of the kingdom of God. That's our destiny. Our destiny is to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like. How do we do that? We do that by the way we live. That's why it's so important that as a believer, we don't just say the right stuff, we do the right stuff. We live with integrity, and our words and our actions match. There can't be a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually behave. You know, the number one excuse that people give for not coming to church is that the church is full of hypocrites. Guess who can make that not true? Us. They can't. We can. As we submit and surrender to God. And our lives begin to track. We begin to actually walk with him and actually follow him. Rather than just hoping that prayer we prayed punched our ticket and we'll go, we'll go to heaven when we die. We're going to follow him because we want to know what he knows and have what he has and do what he did. Our destiny is to give the world glimpses of his kingdom. We do that by how we live, and we do it by how we love, and we do it by how we believe. How we love, we love sacrificially, we love generously, we don't love selfishly. We're not loving in order to get something in return. I said before, it's not just about believing all the right things. It's important to believe the right things. When you believe the wrong things, it will absolutely put you in the ditch. But it's not enough just to believe the right things. It's important how you believe. It's not just important what you believe. It's important how you believe. And, and here's what I would say to, to explain that. Y'all remember, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not sure, somebody at the first service thought it was a, his name was uh, Wallunden. I think maybe his name was Blondin, but there was, a, there was a guy who walked on wires. There's been a bunch of them, but this particular guy who walked, he, he was a tightroper, and he would walk across Niagara Falls. And he walked across Niagara Falls and back, and a few people saw that, and they were impressed, and they kind of gathered, and then he walked across and back again, and more people started to gather, big crowd, and then he took a wheelbarrow, and he walked across Niagara Falls with the wheelbarrow and back. And the crowd went nuts. They thought, this is amazing. And he said, how many of you believe I could put a person in a wheelbarrow and walk it across this wire over Niagara Falls and back? And the people just cheered and went nuts. And they said, we believe, we believe, we believe. And he said, somebody get in. <laughs> it's not just important what you believe. It's important how you believe. Is your belief just an intellectual assent? Or is your belief something that will actually put your body in the wheelbarrow? Because that's what faith is. That's what it means to put your faith in God. 
It's not just a hope that he might. It's an assurance that he will. And our family, our destiny, our, our identity, our destiny, our family. Who, what, who's your family? God's going to give you a family to live out your destiny. It's called the church. It's the body of Christ. We are a part of a global church. There are Christians all over the world. There are just Christians all over the world doing kingdom things. And we're a part of that. We share that family. We're also a part of a, a network of churches here in this area. And we're a part of a local church called Riverstone. So it's kind of like, kind of like we have three families that we can live out our destiny with. You don't have to do this alone. You do it with a family. Church is not perfect. It's not. Church is not perfect. But don't just complain about the imperfections. Make it better. Make it better. Place to start is in your own life. Be consistent. Be faithful. We, we live... In a, in a culture, in a world that has decided that if you don't like the way things are, you leave. And you go find something better. We do this with everything. We do it with jobs. We do it with schools. We do it with houses. We do it with cars. We do it with spouses. We trade families. We trade in one family, go find another. And we do it with churches. Maybe, instead of going on this scavenger hunt trying to find the perfect church, maybe if we just joined together to try to make ours better, we wouldn't have to look. Here's my question for you today. And I believe it's the most important question that you will ever consider. I believe that. And the question is this, are you surrendered to him? Not have you been, were you one time, not did you pray a prayer and do you remember where you were when you did? Have you got it written down in your Bible? None of that. Are you right now, in this moment, surrendered to him? Have you given up the right to run your own life and committed yourself to following him, to knowing what he knows and having what he has so you can do what he did? Are you surrendered to his will for your life? Because apart from that, nothing else matters nothing. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you are so worthy. You are worthy of our surrender. You are. 
You're a king, you're a Lord, and you are worthy of our surrender. I pray, Holy Spirit, move here. Move in our hearts. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask our prayer teams if you would come to the front and uh, get ready to pray for people. And uh, uh, We will pray, our teams will stay here and pray for people for as long as they need to. Uh, and we pray for people every Sunday. And, and you can, uh, regardless of what your need is, you, you can come and people will pray for you if you need physical healing or you need relational healing, you, you need spiritual healing, you just have uh, decisions that you have to make. What, whatever it is, you can come for prayer for anything. But I, I want to say this with, with all, in all urgency, all importance. If you are sitting here today and you know or, or you question whether you are surrendered. Please do not leave here without being prayed for. There is nothing more important than for, for each of us to walk out of those doors today knowing where we stand with Him. Knowing that we're surrendered. It's not a, you know, the, our relationship with him is not one of those where we kind of, you know, discuss who's going to be in charge. You know, is it going to be you, God, or, or is it going to be me? <laughs> he, he doesn't work like that. He's either Lord of all or not at all. So, do not leave here. dealing with that. Holy Spirit, again, we pray. Move in this place. Have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name.